1: This is the voice of the actor Sergei Badrov, playing, perhaps, the defining role in post-Soviet cinema. A young Russian man called Danila Bagrov. Danila is tough, charismatic, and handsome. Like his counterparts in Hollywood action movies he radiates quiet authority and has a gift for violent retribution. The character first appeared in a film called Brother. Daniel returns from military service in Chechnya to take on the gangsters in his hometown of St. Petersburg. But he really seared himself into the public consciousness in the sequel, Brother 2. In this film, released in May 2000, Danila takes on an even bigger challenge: restoring justice in the corrupt and cynical world of post-Soviet Russia.
2: Oh, Russian vodka.
1: Good. With shades of both pulp fiction and Robin Hood, Brother 2 pits Danila against an American kingpin who runs a drug and sex ring in Russia and who is responsible for the death of his best friend. In the movie's climax, Danila shoots his way to the top of a Chicago skyscraper to confront the villain. Staring him down across a chessboard with a gun by his side, Danilo utters a line that would soon become a national catchphrase. Tell me, American, where do you think power lies, Danilo says, in money? I think that power lies in the truth. They who have the truth have the power. The film ends aboard a border flight. Daniela and his friend Dasha are on a plane bound for Moscow, feeling vindicated. The struggle is over, the bad guy defeated. Boy, bring us some vodka, Daniela's friend says to one of the attendants. We're going home. Four days before Brother Two had its premiere, Vladimir Putin was inaugurated as Russia's president for the first time. Everyone expected Brother 3 to follow, but that film was never made. The actor who played Danila, Sergei Badrov, died in a landslide. Russia is still waiting for a sequel. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky from The Economist. This is Next Year in Moscow. Episode 8. Arrivals. In the spring of 2003, I was posted to Moscow by the Financial Times, a foreign correspondent in my home country. My editor asked me what I thought would be the big story of my stint in Russia. I had a boring answer. Now, I wish I could respond the same way. Russia, I said, was becoming a normal country. The excitement of the 90s was over. The capitalist economy was growing up. Vladimir Putin was no liberal, but most people expected he would build on the reforms of his predecessor. But then, three months after I arrived, a story broke that would dominate my work there for the next ten years. At its centre was an oligarch, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky was one of the beneficiaries of a notorious deal struck in the mid-90s between the Kremlin and a small group of bankers and tycoons Which handed them control over Russia's natural resources It was known as loans for shares As a result of the deal Khodorkovsky who was then in his early 30s ended up in charge of Russia's largest oil company Yukos by 2004 He had an estimated personal fortune of around 15 billion dollars making him the richest man in the country and one of the most powerful ones
3: well first of all let me say this forbes called me the the richest man in russia i was the largest shareholder in the yukos oil company but i was not its controlling owner so it's a little bit excessive to say that i was the richest man in russia
1: this, as you might have guessed, is not Mikhail Khodorkovsky. It's the man who speaks English for him, Steve Lang. He has been Khodorkovsky's translator since they met more than 20 years ago. It's a period during which the former oligarch's life has been broken down and rebuilt again. For our interview, Mikhail was with me in our London studio, and Steve was dialing in from his home in Canada.
2: Ah. Uh. So,
3: this started out, I don't know, about 2001-2002. Russia was facing an obvious choice. Uh, It could become a truly Western society, with a Western economy, uh, with a Western social order, open up.
1: As someone in control of the largest oil firm in Russia, Khodorkovsky started to exert influence over the future of the country. Putin needed to consolidate
2: power and resources. At the
3: beginning, uh, Putin honestly did think that money and power were one and the same, which is why he focused on amassing money.
2: But
3: Putin is, is not a stupid man, and he quickly realized that uh, money alone does not equal power. He understood that he needs unconditional loyalty. And corruption was the means through which to acquire this unconditional loyalty.
1: Corruption was not an ailment of the system. It was the system. Khodorkovsky, with his Western ideas of transparency and property rights, was getting in the way of it. And in
2: 2003, the daggers were drawn.
1: In a televised meeting at the Kremlin, the oligarch accused the president of enabling massive levels of corruption among government officials. Putin fired back. He accused Khodorkovsky of evading taxes. The comments felt like a threat.
3: And so I was a very clear and obvious target to use as a loud, showy example of the message that now you've got to toe the line, you've got to do things my way or else.
1: Putin had the ultimate advantage. Khodorkovsky didn't have an army. The president did. Podarkovsky was in Washington when the prosecutor opened a case against his company. An American congressman tried to talk him out of going back, but he had made up his mind and soon boarded his private jet to fly back to Russia. Did you know what was awaiting
2: you?
3: Of course I was aware of what awaited me, uh, but uh, to be honest, I, I had a little bit more of a uh, uh, rainbowy picture of what awaited me.
1: He went to Siberia, the home of the Russian oil industry. In many of its cities, towns and villages, Yukos was the primary employer.
2: Before
3: I was imprisoned, I wanted to have a chance to talk to as many of the people who work for me as possible and to explain to them what my point of view was.
1: But he wasn't only thinking about his employees.
3: It was important for me to get to all of Russia's citizens, to let them know what's going on. I'm also quite aware that people will listen to you a lot more if you speak from prison than if you speak from having run away. And that's why I returned.
1: Podarkovsky's tour came to an end in Novosibirsk, Siberia's largest city, on what was meant to be a refueling stop. When the plane landed, he saw a group of people in black uniforms waiting for him.
2: Uh,
3: They sent this huge plane for me from Moscow uh, filled with an entire regiment of FSB Spetsnaz they presented me with a document saying that they have been assigned to escort me back to Moscow as a witness in a criminal case. But, of course, obviously all of us understood what this all actually meant.
1: In 2003, Khodarkovsky was arrested and jailed. He would spend the next ten years behind bars, some of it in a remote Siberian penal colony. Few people in Russia shed tears for this wealthy man who personified the inequalities of the 90s when the oligarchs wielded enormous power over a state that couldn't even pay salaries on time. But by taking him on, Putin was asserting his own political monopoly. In 2004, a year after his arrest, Khodorkovsky's oil company, Yukos, was dismantled and forced into bankruptcy. Its assets and revenues were channeled to Putin's friends and cronies.
2: Putin
3: has the mentality of a gangster, and for him it was important that he and his buddies get rich and really doesn't care about what happens with everybody else.
1: It was a pivotal moment. Putin and his associates, many of them former KGB men, grabbed control of Russia's oil and gas. And in the process, they took over the judiciary, ending a brief period of political independence in the courts. Ten years in prison transformed Khodorkovsky's status in Russia from oligarch to stoic political prisoner. He was celebrated in the West and amongst Russian liberals at home. To Putin... Who was by now in full control, he no longer presented a threat. But he had become a nuisance, and keeping him in jail would only bolster his image. So in December 2013, he let him go. Khodarkovsky, in his prison clothes, was led out of his cell, bundled into a plane, and flown out of Russia to exile in Berlin. It was an abrupt ending to the story. And years on, Khodarkovsky is still in exile, knowing he'd face arrest if he returned. Using whatever money and personal capital he has, he is now fighting against the ultimate act of corruption and violence – Putin's war. By his own admission, he is not a politician, but his experiences give him a perspective on what it takes to be one in Russia today.
2: uh,
3: If he wants uh, to retain any chance of being the number one person in the political hierarchy of Russia, he absolutely has to return to Russia. However, this is fraught with great physical risk for him.
1: In August 2020, Alexei Navalny, Russia's number one opposition politician, was in Siberia. He was in a combative mood. Massive protests had broken out in one of Russia's neighbors to the west, Belarus, against its dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. Meanwhile, in the east of Russia, people were also out in the streets, rallying against the Kremlin and cheering protesters in Belarus. Navalny felt the moment was ripe with potential. So did the Kremlin. Kira Yarmash, Navalny's long-serving spokesperson, was with him on that trip through Siberia. It was a Thursday. They were preparing to return to Moscow.
4: And I remember that when we boarded on that plane, uh, I was... Uh, very satisfied with the whole trip and I thought how well, how great it was and how great it would be to go back home
1: The plane took off on what should have been a four and a half hour flight Kira and Navalny were seated together
4: Alexei started to watch uh, Rick and Morty and I was reading a book
1: Navalny is well known for his love of Rick and Morty an animated sitcom about a mad scientist and his grandson
4: And in 15 minutes, he closed his laptop and he asked me to talk to him because he started to feel unwell. And I remember that he was very pale. Now it was obvious that something is wrong with him, but no one knew what exactly. He got up, excused himself, told that he will go to the bathroom, uh, and he never returned.
1: Soon after leaving his seat, he collapsed onto the floor of the plane. On a video recorded by one of the other passengers, you can hear him moaning in pain. The moment when the pilot made contact with air traffic control, is also captured on tape. We have a man lying on the floor being sick, he says, most likely poisoned, not drunk. He needs emergency medical attention. About 40 minutes later, the plane made an emergency landing in Omsk. Paramedics injected Navalny with Atropin and almost certainly saved his life. He was soon in a coma. After some wrangling, Putin eventually agreed that Navalny could be transferred to Berlin, hoping never to see him again on Russian soil. Medics plays the comatose politician in a sealed hazmat stretcher before loading him onto the plane. It looked like a coffin from a science fiction film. On the 7th of September, nearly three weeks after the poisoning, Doctors in Berlin announced that they had taken Navalny out of his coma. The moment he awoke, Navalny's chief of staff told him what had happened. Putin had poisoned him with Novichok, a nerve agent only available to operatives of the Russian state. Fuck, how stupid is that, Navalny said. His friends knew he was back in action. I went to see Alexei in early October. Kira met me on the corner of Kurfurstenstrasse in West Berlin and led me into a safe house that was brimming with German plainclothes security and police. Navalny looked gaunt. His neck was scarred where the intubation tubes had gone in. His hands trembled. His speech was fast. He'd been having trouble sleeping, he said. But his near-death experience hadn't dimmed his ambitions. Instead, it made him more determined than ever. He was already planning his return to Russia and would get on a plane as soon as he'd recovered his mobility and strength. As he told me time and again, he was a professional politician, fighting for power. He was confident that time was on his side. Putin was a throwback, holding on to an outdated idea of Russia as an empire and its people as subjects. Navalny had a different vision of Russia as a modern European nation-state where people have agency. Putin is the last cord of the USSR, he told me, and people in the Kremlin know there is a historic current that is moving against them.
2: they're
1: They're scared of me, he said, and desperately don't want me to return. If you do, I replied, They could arrest you and lock you up for a quarter of a century. He shrugged. So let them.
0: Hi, I'm Shashank Joshi, the Economist's Defence Editor, and I'd like to tell you about some of the reporting that our team has been doing on the war in Ukraine. The technology of the conflict, the strategy of both sides, and of course the fighting on the battlefield. Right now, there's a really palpable sense that Ukraine's counter-offensive, a long-awaited attack to recover some of their territory from Russian occupation is drawing close, that it will happen in the coming days or the coming weeks. We've been reporting on the flood of Western arms going into Ukraine, the role of training of Ukrainian officers in Europe, and the challenges that Ukraine is going to face in breaking through what is now a formidable set of Russian defences, trenches, tank traps, ditches. But there really is a feeling now that this is a decisive moment in the conflict that is looming ahead of us. As we cover this, Arkady and I are constantly talking to senior officials, civilian leaders, military officers in North America, in Europe, and of course in Ukraine itself to ensure that our coverage is balanced, that it's comprehensive, and we hope is unparalleled. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you so much. You make all of that possible. Otherwise, for access to all of our journalism, and to join exclusive events with Arkady, me and other members of our team, please visit economist.com slash Moscow offer. That's economist.com slash Moscow offer. The link is in the notes for the podcast.
1: I got two bags. Um... around 1pm on January 17th, 2021, I arrived at Brandenburg Airport in Berlin and checked in for flight 936 to Vnukovo, yeah. Moscow. It was operated by a low-cost airline called Pabieda, which means victory in Russian. The departure lounge was teeming with journalists. We made our way onto the plane and took our seats. Then, Alexei Navalny stepped into the cabin.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Mr.
3: Navalny
2: from
1: People clapped, cameras flashed. Navalny slid into his chair two rows in front of me, in 13A, his lucky seat. Next to his wife. Looking into a phone camera held by one of their aides, Yulia and Alexei Navalny reenacted a scene from a popular film. Boy, bring in some vodka. We're going home. The clip was soon live on Instagram. Navalny barely talked through the rest of the flight. He and Yulia sat watching Rick and Morty. As we approached our destination, I handed my boarding pass to him and asked him to scribble his thoughts on it. Yo, Arcadi, he wrote. Last time I passed notes across Rose was at school. Glad you're on this funny flight, going I don't know where. A few minutes into our descent, the captain made an announcement. Moscow's Vnukovo airport, where 2,000 Navalny supporters had gathered, was, he said, closed for technical reasons. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, Navalny shouted to his fellow passengers. We were being diverted to a different airport on the other side of the city, Sheremetyevo. A few hundred protesters had managed to get there in time and assembled outside. As Navalny walked through the terminal, followed by his wife and dozens of journalists, he paused in front of a poster of the Kremlin. He then turned to address the press. This is the happiest day for the past five months of my life, he said. I have come home. He then proceeded to passport control. You must have missed me. I missed you, he told border guards. A group of officers in black uniforms approached. As his lawyer argued with the officers, Navalny silently turned towards his wife, Yulia. She hugged him and kissed him goodbye on the cheek, then attentively wiped away the lipstick. Navalny was taken alone to a holding cell and onto a kangaroo court which the authorities had hastily assembled in prison. A portrait of Stalin's secret police chief hung on the wall. In the next few days, mass protests broke out across the country... Of Navalny's arrest. Putin controlled the courts, the secret police, and the army. Navalny controlled the narrative. Speaking from the dock a few weeks after landing in Moscow, Navalny addressed the judge and the country. He spoke like he was at a rally or delivering a sermon. He cited the Bible before offering a modern interpretation. What's the most popular political slogan in Russia, he asked. Help me, someone. Where do you think power lies? It lies in truth. They who have the truth have the power. Tens of millions of people want the truth, and they'll get it sooner or later. One of those millions of people, hungry for truth, was a young Navalny supporter, Maria Kuznetsova.
6: I even went to the airport to meet him. I was one of the few people who went to the right airport because he changed it last minute.
1: How did you manage to get from Vnukova airport to Sheremetyevo?
6: Because I didn't go to Vnukovo.
1: So how did you guess going to the right airport? Or did you live nearby?
6: I just lived nearby.
1: Maria hadn't always lived in Moscow. She was born in 1998 in Novokuznetsk, a mining town in Siberia, and one of Russia's most polluted places.
6: Actually, I remember that the snow was really black because of the pollution. And when I was at the fourth grade, Vladimir Putin was supposed to go to Novokuznetsk, and they just painted the snow to be white for his visit.
1: She saw violence everywhere growing up. Boys scrapping at school, drunken men beating their wives.
6: It just felt like you could never escape from that, and there were no opportunities for you. So... I knew straight away that I will leave Siberia and go either to Moscow or St. Petersburg.
1: She moved to Moscow at 17 to enroll in a diplomatic academy. Her ambition was to join the Russian Foreign Service, but she quickly became disillusioned with the system.
6: During the first year, I understood quite clearly that what Russian universities showed to be social sciences is just propaganda.
1: And in 2017, she watched a film that encapsulated the rot. It was an investigation of corruption in the Kremlin, produced by Navalny and his team.
6: I'm from that generation for whom that film opened eyes. I was not interested in Russian politics before that. I wanted to work for an NGO somewhere very far away from Russia. But when I saw that film, everything changed for me.
1: The film was part of Navalny's presidential campaign, and it spoke to a new current in Russian politics. Because Navalny was a totally new type of politician for Russia, he stormed Russian politics with a laptop and an Internet connection. His grassroots campaigns were informed by American TV shows like The Wire. He made his own fortune. His message that change was possible was now reaching parts of society well beyond the prosperous Moscow and St. Petersburg crowds who had protested against Putin before. They were younger, poorer and angrier. Maria herself volunteered for his campaign and started collecting signatures. It wasn't because she was enamoured with his leadership style, but because he hailed a change to a system that was preventing her and her country from advancing. In the years to come, Maria's political activism expanded. She worked for Open Russia, a pro-democracy group founded by Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Like many people, this drew her to the attention of the authorities. And in 2021, tired of the searches and intimidation, she moved to Georgia. Within a year, Russia had invaded Ukraine. She felt she couldn't go back. But this criminal war reinforced her feeling of responsibility for her country and, paradoxically, changed her own sense of identity.
6: I always, before the war, I always preferred to say that I'm from Russia, that I'm not Russian, because I just didn't feel that nationality was important. But since the 24th of February, I definitely started to identify more as a Russian Now it's a thing that I cannot leave and a thing that I need to work on for many years.
1: Cultivating a new sense of national identity is central to Navalny's project. And this is directly related to what's happening on the front lines of the war. Ukraine wishes to be a European nation-state. And Navalny wants the same for Russia. Putin can't allow either. But the president's tactics appear to be backfiring. We know that the war has strengthened Ukraine's sense of nationhood. And now we're starting to see that opposition to the war is also awakening a new sense of national consciousness in Russia. It is in Russia's national interests, Navalny said in a recent statement, to stop the war, withdraw troops from all of Ukraine's territory, use Russian oil and gas revenues to pay compensation to Ukraine, and bring war criminals to justice. Maria is now studying at Harvard. In a recent tweet, she wrote that she was there to learn how to try war criminals and restore peace.
6: I think it's quite clear that even if this war ends, but the government does not change in Russia, it can start a new war. That's why I just think that our... War, in a way, is much longer than this one.
1: And is your war?
6: Definitely, definitely.
1: And this war, too, is a fight for territory, because Putin wants to confine the version of Russia that Maria and Navalny both envisage to a remote prison cell. It's a metaphor with precise physical dimensions.
4: His cell is about six square metres. You can't properly move there because it's tiny, and for a man of his height, it is like a concrete cage.
1: Alexei Navalny has mostly been in solitary confinement since last summer at Pinal Colony, IK6, 250 kilometres east of Moscow. His spokesperson, Kira Yarmash, described it for us.
4: There is only iron stool inside that is nailed to the floor, so you can't move it around. There is a tiny window, but it doesn't open, of course. There is no ventilation, there is no hot water. And in the morning, at 5 a.m., you have to give away your mattress, and your bed is tightened to the wall, and you are prohibited from lying on the floor. So you can only stand or sit on the stool. Uh, this is it.
1: Everything is designed with a prisoner's discomfort in mind. Even the walls, which are finished with a rough texture.
4: This is a special gulag invention, actually, so that it would be very uncomfortable to lean on that wall, and you can't write anything on it.
1: Prohibited from making phone calls, Navalny is given less than 35 minutes a day during which to read legal documents and write letters. The lights in his cell are never switched off. And he is banned from buying food in the prison shop, subsisting on whatever he is given by the guards.
4: In Russia it means slowly dying from hunger because it is definitely insufficient to survive on this type of food. Him being in this cell is definitely a torture. It is physical torture and psychological because, well... He is not allowed to do anything there.
1: Kira says his health is failing and that he is rapidly losing weight.
4: They called an ambulance to Alexei uh, in the prison. So, I mean, the guards decided to call an ambulance and we all understand that in Russian prison, only if you are in a critical condition, they will uh, call you a doctor.
1: The state is now busy working on a new case that would brand Navalny an extremist. Charges against him. Could carry 35 years in jail, but Navalny's experience hasn't deterred other opposition figures from following his example and facing the consequences for it. Ilya Yashin is serving an eight and a half year jail term, and while we were working on this episode, Vladimir Karmurza was sentenced to 25 years. Both are represented by Maria Eismont, the lawyer from our previous episode. By handing out sentences that hark back to the darkest Stalinist days, Putin is telling his opponents abandon hope. By refusing to fear him, they're delivering their verdict. The 70-year-old president will not live forever. Prison exists in your mind, Navalny says in one post. And if you think carefully... I'm not in prison, but on a space voyage to a wonderful new world.
4: He's a very strong and brave man, so um, he remains very positive, and uh, we can see it in his letters, in his posts, something like that. He believes in what he is doing, so this keeps him going.
5: I try to help him to feel better in the prison, to give him my support, moral support.
1: Shimon Levin is a rabbi. He was born and raised in Russia and spent several years working in a Moscow synagogue before moving to Israel, which is where I met him earlier this year. He and Alexei were introduced by Navalny's
5: chief of staff. And uh, we had a long, long conversation uh, Maybe maybe four hours, five hours conversation into the middle of the night. It was very interesting. I had a lot of questions about Jews and about Judaism. Shimon and Navalny only met in person
1: that one time. But they've been corresponding since Navalny's incarceration. Navalny, who is a practicing Christian, has spent much of his time inside studying the Bible and the Torah. And he's been campaigning to be allowed a copy of the Quran. He has drawn on Shimon's knowledge. And Shimon has, in turn, learned from the jailed politician.
5: If Russia maybe have a better future, then he's the person who can make this future much better. And in my opinion, it's very important if he will stay in life, and I hope he will be free. It will affect very much to the Russian and the old world history.
1: It's telling that Navalny's story arc, a hero who narrowly escapes death and returns to challenge an evil emperor, resonates with everything from Greek mythology to Hamlet to Star Wars. The politician is on an epic journey of his own design. To religious men like Shimon, there is an even more obvious reference.
5: I think what happens to Alexei Navalny, it's very biblical history. I think the story of the Torah, it's a people who didn't afraid and who fought against the evil, who f- uh, fought against the lies, and uh, sometimes uh, they succeed, sometimes uh, they didn't, but they continued to uh, this fight.
1: The point with Navalny is that unlike Putin. His story is designed to survive contact with death. Myths are hard to kill. Navalny may or may not see his beautiful Russia of the future. And those who have left Russia don't know whether there will ever be a place they can call home again.
5: 2,000 years ago, Jews uh, was forced to leave Israel by Roman Empire. But they took their identity with them. Their identity wasn't identity of land. And uh, today I think it's a similar situation. When people leave, not only Jews, all all the people, uh, Russians, Ukrainians. they can take their culture with them and to develop this culture and this identity in uh, every country in the world. And I think it's very important.
1: But creating a culture outside a homeland doesn't mean giving up on where you came from. At the time of Passover, Jews around the world repeat L'Shanah Chaba'ah B'Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem. It's a reminder of their life in exile, but it's also an expression of hope.
5: Today, I think it's important to people who left Russia to create such a similar thing to next year in Moscow. In which Moscow? Moscow today, if I decide to go there, it will be a very not pleasant place for me.
1: Between those who have left and those who remain, a version of Moscow is being kept alive. In this city, there are no spray-painted letter Zs. No FSB, no political prisoners, and there is no war.
5: I love Moscow. I love Russia, and a good Russia and good Moscow. And I want to visit next year Moscow, Moscow, which is exist in my mind.
1: Nexty in Moscow is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton, and Ksenia Brakowska, with help from Lika Kremer and Liba Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Schmueri. Our sound design is by Weidon Len, with original music by Darren Ang. Our executive producer is John Shields. Our fact-checkers are Andrea Burgess, Noah Flora, Erica Shin and Roxana Davis. Thank you also to Maria Aglicheva, Anya Gilesina, Andrei Barzianka, and Palina Filipova for their help. And thanks to my colleagues at The Economist for their guidance and support, particularly Andy Miller, Chris Lockwood, Ed Carr, Oliver Morton, and our editor in chief, Zanny Minton Beddoes. Finally, we're grateful to all those outside and inside Russia, who agreed to talk to us, often at considerable risk. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist.